0: From Kirkco Media.
1: So, what you gonna do about it?
0: This is an important show. LA is one of those cities that has it all Beverly Hills, Malibu, Bel Air on the one hand, Skid Row, Watts, South Central, and even a place called the Fashion District on the other. Communities of color that have a surprising, even shocking challenge when it comes to balancing reasonable people's needs and their environment's realities. Today we're visited by a woman who has experienced both the challenges of growing up and now helping to manage those communities, as well as having held a position of power and influence with the Los Angeles Board of Police Commissioners. She has a unique and important perspective. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. And once again, my co-host, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney. She's fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. And she's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. And she's also been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, how you doing? Nice of you to join us.
1: Good. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: And zooming in, our special guest, Shane Murphy Goldsmith. She's the president and CEO of Liberty Hill Foundation, one of the nation's most admired social change foundations. And she's also the co-chair of the California Funders for Boys and Men of Color. Previously, Shane was the vice president of the Los Angeles Board of Police Commissioners, as well as the executive director of PATH Ventures. PATH is People Assisting the Homeless. She served as a senior advisor to Eric Garcetti when he was a city council president, overseeing housing, economic development, the city budget, public safety, and LGBTQ issues. Shane is also a DeFree Foundation Stanton Fellow. She was focused on dealing with youth and justice issues. Welcome, Shane. Nice to have you here. Thanks for joining.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Shane, you've certainly dedicated your life to helping architect a better life for people who kind of need a foothold. Part of your inspiration came from your own family and how you grew up. Take us on a quick journey of your childhood, if you would.
2: I grew up pretty poor in Santa Monica with my parents and my little brother. My mom died when I was about nine years old. They owned this small little business on Lincoln Boulevard in Santa Monica. They repaired and sold used appliances. When she died, because we didn't have health insurance while she was sick, my dad just had to turn over all of our resources for her health care. So there was nothing left to keep the business going when she died. Of course, if we had had health insurance, then she would have had proper care and I think gotten the medical treatment she needed much sooner and much more effectively. Even if she had passed away, we would have at least been able to keep the business going. And so that plummeted us into poverty. My dad did the best he could, and I'm forever grateful for how he just put his arms around me and my little brother. And we took one step at a time kind of us against the world. He ended up dying when I was about 19. We had no other family and no resources. In fact, right after he died, our landlord told us that we had to move out right away. I didn't know at the time about rent control. I didn't know that I had rights. I just knew that we had to move out immediately. And uh, we did, but it meant that we had to leave everything behind. And we'd always struggled in poverty. Life was hard. Certainly losing our parents made it harder. My brother became a Crip and ended up going to jail when he was 17. He was the only white Crip in Watts, as far as we know, which is a, a mostly Black gang in various places throughout the country, but highly concentrated in Watts and South LA. I remember vividly going to the courthouse, sitting in front of the judge and pleading with him to try my brother as the child he was. He was 17 years old, he had had a rough, rough life, and he deserved to be tried as the child he was. And unfortunately, the judge decided to try him as an adult, and of course, the penalties were far worse, and continue to follow him now 25 years later. The combination of all of those experiences have lit a fire in me to fight back against injustice wherever I find it, and to fight for a world where... We don't abandon our, our kids. We don't abandon families. We provide the resources people need. And most importantly, that that people have the power to fight for themselves.
0: So at that point, after your brother was incarcerated, you were pretty much alone. How did you handle that?
2: Well, I was incredibly lucky. I was in college at the time. I went to college in Ohio, and I was able to go back to my dorm, and my Professors and my friends took really good care of me. They gave me house sitting jobs during the breaks so that I, I mean, I would have had nowhere to live. And just like my college community supported me, the Crips did the same thing for my brother. They took him in, they gave him a place to live, they gave him clothes, they made sure he could earn a living, and they gave him lots of love and community. So they had me take care of their pets, their homes, their kids, and they made sure I had a place to live. They made sure I had could earn a living. I made sure I was surrounded by love and community. Of course, I worked as well and was able to finish college and graduate and become an organizer, and the rest is history.
1: I was going to say, you make a good point. Gangs are often a source of community and support for young men who don't have other options, Absolutely. who don't have other support systems.
0: Shane, you've come a long way since that time. You leapfrogged over those struggles and take us on a little journey all the way to your first day as vice president of the L.A. Board of Police Commissioners.
2: Yes, it has been quite a journey.
0: I mean, were the police your friends when you were growing up?
2: No. Growing up, I was really terrified of the police. Um, We had a number of situations where we did not think the police were there to protect us. We believed that and were terrified that they were going to take us away from our dad and We were going to be separated, you know, like most low income people. My dad lost his driver's license at one point. And so he had to drive us around without a license. And he just became obsessed with the fear that we were going to get pulled over and we were going to get taken away. And then, of course, my brother had a lot of encounters with the police that were pretty brutal and unfair, both before he went to jail and during and after. And so I had this sort of visceral, I think, fear, but also anger toward the police that you know, as I got further away from those experiences, and as I moved through my career doing the work I do, I, you know, that began to evolve. And I got to do work, for example, for then city council president, Eric Garcetti, now our mayor, um, where, you know, I worked closely with the LAPD and others to deal with crime and graffiti in our neighborhoods. And so my perspective evolved as I had opportunities to collaborate with the police. But, Once I went to work for Liberty Hill Foundation and was became really steeped in movements around racial justice and economic justice. And seeing my brother continue to move through the criminal justice system I still carried with me deeply felt concern for the way that police interact with black men, in particular, and with low income people and people of color in general and learned a lot about the injustices that folks face. My career was really about fighting for social justice, fighting for racial justice, and not just my career. I mean, it was my heart. Always carrying my brother with me, who's still my best friend, and always wanting to create a world that doesn't produce the conditions that my brother had to live with.
0: So here you have all of these things weighing on you, your childhood, the whole process of watching your brother go through it, and your mom and your, your dad, and, and here you are on your first day with the police commission you were walking into the lapd what did you expect to see and then what did you learn during your tenure there
2: i joined the police commission because i wanted to do something about over policing in low-income communities of color police violence and the over use of police for people experiencing homelessness people with mental health issues low-income people people of color. And I went to the police commission with very ambitious goals. When I got there, my first day, I vividly remember, it was in the midst of the first Black Lives Matter movement four and a half years ago. And at the end of the meeting, the activists wanted the police commissioners to stay behind and talk to them directly, you know, because once we're on the dais and we're in a police commission meeting we're very limited in terms of the way that we can interact with the public. And so they really wanted to have a dialogue with us. And most of the commissioners left the room, but one woman stayed behind who knew them well. And I decided to stay with her, both because I deeply cared about the Black Lives Matter movement. It was one of the things that inspired me to think there was a chance at real lasting change. And so I wanted to stay back too. And we stayed for a few minutes, we interacted with them and we left. And this, I mean there was a newspaper article printed that day about the fact that i and the other commissioner stayed behind to talk to these protesters and the police union began calling for my resignation because they already believed that i was anti-police because of the work that i do and then when they saw me in this perceived act of solidarity with the black lives matter movement they became convinced that i was against them and you know could not be fair to them,
0: as opposed to feel like this was a remarkable moment that actually had some light at the end of the tunnel, they actually felt that they needed to stop that early on.
2: Yeah, and it was very shocking for me. I mean, it was a, it was you know very public. I mean, there's a newspaper article now. The the police union's newspaper is is writing articles about me and asking for my resignation. I mean, it was a very painful and uh, just critical you know reaction to me. And like you said, simply you know, doing what I thought was my role in terms of listening to community members and engaging with them directly. And, and, you know, it's true that I cared deeply about the movement for Black Lives and cared deeply about people who had experienced the worst of Los Angeles policing. And what I had to do is figure out how, you know, if I, I have these ambitions, I'm not going to get them done by being a a lone ranger, right? I had to find common ground with other commissioners, with the leadership of the police.
0: Build some bridges, yeah.
2: Right. And to build bridges with the rank and file. And with others, I couldn't have the police union constantly targeting me because then I would lose credibility and I would lose power and I wouldn't be able to make a way forward. And so I did have to find ways to build those bridges.
0: Can you give us some specifics how you worked through it?
2: I eventually sat down with the board of the police union and tried to get to know them a little bit and and wanted them to get to know me a little bit to see that I really was here to make a difference. And I did want to build bridges and I was a real person, not some type of dehumanized target. And that it was in their interest to work with me. I am on the commission. You can demonize me or you can try to work with me. And I think that helped on both sides to really humanize both of us and to give us some openings to have more communication and I just did a lot of listening. I did a lot of ride-alongs with the police and just listened to them talk for hours about the communities they worked in, their backgrounds, their you know ideas about what was going on with the larger movement, what's going on in their day-to-day work. Spent a lot of time with the leadership of the police, understanding where they wanted to go, what was holding them back, you know, how were they perceiving what was happening, and and similarly letting them get to know me and to build trust because we didn't always agree. In fact, you know, we often disagreed, but we can do that in a way that strives to find common ground and that treats each other with mutual respect and I think we eventually got there. And as a result we we're able to do great things. we were able to declare that police would only take enforcement action with people ex- experiencing homelessness as a last resort. We saw arrests and citations of people experiencing homelessness go way down. We implemented department-wide implicit bias training so that every single person in the LAPD got implicit bias training. We we did a, a, a lot of things, Enga- deeply engaged the immigrant community at the height of the Trump era fear um, and attacks on immigrants to make sure they knew that the LAPD had their backs. So they weren't going to be turning anyone into ICE. So we did a lot together, I think, to respond to some of the greatest concerns that we were hearing in the community because we found that common ground.
1: What were some of the things that you learned, having gotten to know the police and, and more about what they do? What were some of the things that you learned that surprised you?
2: From the police officers, I learned that most of the time when they pull a car over or respond to a call, you know, knock on a door, they're expecting the worst. They, most of the time, the tactics they use are expecting the possibility that somebody could pull a gun out on them. And so I came to understand that that's their experience. You know, I trying to set aside my judgment of why would they feel that way when that is so incredibly rare and knowing that the chances that implicit bias was informing who they were afraid of and who they weren't just setting that aside and trying to deeply understand their own experience. The reality was that they were trained to prepare and that they imagined the worst. And then I could begin to see how that influences interactions right? right away. You've got this this police officer who's prepared for this to go very badly, and so of course that's going to have an impact on folks in the community. And so I could better understand where they were coming from and how things might escalate. When we're watching kind of as a third party, it's just unclear how did this go from a you know a knock on the door to a use of force. So that helped me to understand you know what was going on in their minds sometimes.
0: We're going to take a quick break, Shane, and when we come back. We're going to talk about some of your surprising and well-thought-out visions for LAPD's future.
2: On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite
0: podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Media. Shane, you were describing to me the other day about how you can appreciate how police put their jobs on the line and their lives on the line, and they're attacked all the time. And, and right now, they're really attacked emotionally, politically, and otherwise. But you said we're inheriting hundreds of years of pain and rage at the results of oppression. Talk about the other side for a minute so that we understand where some of the clash comes in, where some of the challenge comes in that you've been trying to bridge. 2020
2: was a reckoning. For so many of us. It was a, a racial justice reckoning. It was a reckoning with police culture and police violence and so many other things. And from what I heard from police officers, it can it f- could feel at times like the whole world had turned against them. And it felt very personal. You know, as a police officer, they may not be, it's not my name in the headlines, but it feels like they criticizing me. It feels like they think that I'm a bad person. And a lot of police officers felt that way. And and frankly, I think. A lot of white people felt that way because there was so much talk about white supremacy and racism and structural racism and anti-black racism, especially. I think what we have to realize is that we are inheriting hundreds of years of pain and rage and the results of oppression that it's coming out now. And we are absorbing that. And so while an individual officer may never have You know, used his gun or may never have have done anything hurtful in his job, that the reality is we all have to try not to take it so personally and try to figure out how to improve ourselves as white people in a racist society, to improve our police officers' individual work and the structure and context and culture of their work. I think it can be overwhelming, and I heard from some police officers that it felt quite Overwhelming and they, they felt under attack and I understand that and I and I understand the frustration that they felt and I can see how that can translate to anger at protesters or anger at people who are raising these issues, but the reality is that these issues need to be raised, we need to deal with them, I could do something today that results in strong criticism of me that somebody, you know, 30 years ago could have done and they didn't get criticized for it at all and I can resent the world because why am I getting in trouble for this thing that was perfectly acceptable before but That's the opportunity I have is to get that feedback and use it as a way to grow and a way to change my behavior so that we can make a better world. And I think trying not to take it quite so personally and and turning it into resentment and dehumanizing other people is the challenge And, and finding that humanity in each other, finding that common ground so we can make a way forward together.
1: I agree with you, Shane. I think we've got to find a way, and we can and we should, to absolutely condemn bad acts, bad policies, bad police departments, without condemning every last police first responder out there. I know it's been hard on them. And when you look at the Capitol Hill police who tried to defend the Capitol, when you look at the policeman in Boulder, Colorado, who rushed in, father of seven who got killed, I think that's just a reminder that there are good cops out there. There are part of our first responders, and they're the only first responders that almost get no Appreciation. So I think we have to find a balance because if you're going to ask the police to change, you can't constantly be attacking. You have to say, OK, this we condemn, but we understand your problem and let's listen to each other.
2: I think one of the most important things police departments can do and one of the greatest results of the protests in the streets of 2020 would be a robust investment in alternative responses to crisis situations or nonviolent, non-criminal situations, meaning alternatives to police responses. So there are, you know, mental health teams, outreach teams who know how to connect people experiencing homelessness with housing and other ways of responding to non-criminal, non-violent situations that keep police out of it, ideally, and respond in such a way that can actually help the situation, not just sort of quell it, but actually, you know, if someone's having a mental health episode in a street, let's get that person off the street. Let's get that person the care that they need. Not only does it require that alternative response in the first responder role, but it requires a robust investment in the whole system so that, you know, it's not just sending the mental health experts out to deal with the person who's in the middle of the street, but it's making sure you have a robust infrastructure of community-based mental health service providers that that person can connect to that are going to keep in touch with that person when they, you know, wander off or experience barriers to, to care. So for example, there's programs that were implemented in the LAPD called the Community Safety Partnership, which is essentially law enforcement as a last resort in communities experiencing high levels of gang-related crime, especially gang homicides. And so what they do is, it's not a perfect program, but what they do is they partner with community leaders and community organizations to do prevention, intervention, and um, just kind of community building so that the police are not creating an enforcement response to things they normally would like gang activity or certain types of conflicts in the community. And by keeping the police response out and keeping it as a last resort and instead creating these community-based interventions, they've been able to significantly reduce gang homicides in these particular neighborhoods. So I figure we can use these alternatives to policing that can reduce gang homicides, You know, surely we can invest in more of that, less policing and more community-based responses to crime. But that's sort of the most furthest along on the spectrum. Certainly we can send a mental health worker to respond to somebody who's having mental illness or a housing outreach worker to respond to somebody who's experiencing homelessness or a social service worker to a kid who did some low-level petty theft, stole some shoes. You want to put that kid in jail and probably They're going to be in and out of jail for the rest of their lives? Or do we want to figure out how to give that kid a second chance, give them the resources they need, hold them accountable if they did some kind of harm?
0: Where do you put the concept of law enforcement and appropriate punishment as deterrence? How do you deal with that part of the attitude that we have toward criminal behavior?
2: A lot of what I did on the police commission was bring attention to unintended consequences and impact. So we can talk about a lot of other parts of the puzzle. But if we're ignoring the impact of that interaction or the impact of that policy, then we are not doing our job. So the reality is that the way police currently respond to these situations contributes to an environment where people are afraid of the police. Many people, especially Black men, they don't believe that police are there to protect them. And those situations can escalate to uses of force and have resulted in mass criminalization and mass incarceration of people of color.
0: Is that a perception or is that an overall reality? That's a reality. It is a reality.
1: I was going to say, even I know that's a reality. I mean, historically, going back to slavery and then after slavery, the police have been not there to protect Black people. They've been there to oppress Black people far too often. That's not always, but far too often
2: last big thing I did before I left the police commission that was really the goal that I had all along, and it took four years to get it done, but was to deal with this thing called pretext stops. So we've heard of driving while black. We've heard of these incidents where the police will pull someone over for a paper license plate or a tinted window or a broken taillight. And the situation escalates to potentially to a use of force. But even when it doesn't, and it's rare that it does, it creates this fear, this climate of fear. We hear all the time, Black people have the talk, you know, with their kids, if you ever get pulled over by a cop, you know, it's a a lot of fear, you know, and it creates an abusive situation. So that's called a pretext stop. That's I'm stopping you because of your taillight, because I think you might have a gun, or I think you might be doing a parole violation, or I think you might be dealing drugs or something. So I'm going to, you know, stop you on this pretext of a Traffic violation. And what we know is that most of the people who are stopped in pretext stops are a disproportionate amount of Black men. So when I went into it, I thought I assumed that the police department was going to make the argument that these pretext stops serve a purpose. They help us keep crime down or deal with spikes of crime. And so it is a deterrent and it is a way to actually get people who are committing crimes off the streets. So I assumed that would be the argument. What I knew though, is that it was contributing to, you know, perpetuating racism and fear and delegitimizing the police and causing distrust of government. And once someone gets arrested, you know, we know all the consequences that come as a result of that. And so I commissioned a study to, to look at all of that. And so the police commission had the inspector general do this really in-depth study of these pretext stops. And it turns out that they actually were not resulting in citations and arrests. The reality is police officers were pulling all these people over and not finding guns or narcotics. And it was just these too often very negative interactions that perpetuated fear and racism, but were not resulting in catching a crime. So once we figured that out, we could see, okay, it's not serving the purpose that people said it was.
0: Did they adopt your strategy?
2: Yeah, all the recommendations in the report by the inspector general were adopted and the department committed to significantly reducing pretext stops and to making racial equity a metric. Like whatever stops do happen, we don't wanna see this disproportionality. It all comes down to implementation and continuing to hold ourselves and the police accountable to making sure that the ultimate result is achieved. But at least we knocked down the idea that these stops served a greater purpose and begin to unravel them so that we don't see this kind of harm being done in our streets every day.
0: We'll be back in a flash to talk about Shane's current position as president and CEO of the Liberty Hill Foundation, along with her mountain of causes that require her attention.
2: A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Cow Media.
0: Currently 21 years old. And today, I today, like I'm magic extended read a from her fingertips down to the you base of You have to take of care
2: spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your me, voice. Every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. Her
0: fingers were facing me.
2: You can feel like
0: your purpose and your worth is really being it questioned. You're going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys
1: walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
0: love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find The ones beauty that are of right. rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front
1: and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms.
2: Submit your piece at com slash a moment of your time.
0: What is Liberty Hill Foundation?
2: Liberty Hill Foundation is L.A.'s home for progressive philanthropy. We are... L.A.'s Social Justice Foundation, we raise money and we give it away to community organizations and leaders in communities that have faced systemic oppression and provide the support that they need to organize their communities to build power for their communities and to win policies and lasting change in their communities so everything from racial justice economic justice you know affordable housing environmental justice lgbtq rights workers rights you know really any issue in low income communities communities of color where folks are facing oppression and they We know that those folks who are closest to the pain need to be closest to the power and are the ones with the solution and who need to lead the way because they have the most to gain and the most to lose. And so we do everything we can to provide resources so they can wage these David and Goliath battles and win.
0: Interesting that you can understand the progression from the police commission to Liberty Hill, but maybe you can tell us about the process. What got you there? Tell us the story about getting to Liberty Hill.
2: Well, when I was a young community organizer about 25 years ago, I applied for a grant from Liberty Hill Foundation for my work and was declined. And as much as I disagreed with that decision, I became enamored with Liberty Hill because of the process that they use. They have this community funding board of people who are organizers, who are on the front lines, who are experts in the work. And I just envisioned these these giants of social justice sitting around a table talking about politics and social change in Los Angeles and figuring out how to get more resources into the field. And it just sounded awesome. And it was founded by four people who, you know, in the mid '70s, who had inherited a tremendous amount of wealth, including. Sarah Pillsbury of the Pillsbury family, and who really were inspired by the movements of the time and felt that they hadn't earned this money, you know, they were inheriting it. And they decided to pull their resources and turn their resources over to communities in Los Angeles who were at the front lines of these battles. And they said, you you know what the problems are, you know what the solutions are you know what's best. Here's our resources. You decide what to do with them. And that was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary now, still at the cutting edge of of philanthropy and of foundations in this country that we really believe that the people who are doing the work, the people who are most impacted are the ones that have the solutions and the ones who need to lead the way. And so just like we did 45 years ago, we do today, we raise our money and we give it away to community organizers and grassroots leaders.
0: So they just came and found you and recruited you, or did you seek them out? How'd that happen?
2: Well, I joined the community funding board. At the time, it was the LGBTQ community funding board and thought I, it was like winning an Oscar. I was absolutely thrilled and um, humbled and was a volunteer on that board for two years and then got recruited into a management position at the foundation and then eventually became the CEO.
0: That's a pretty impressive rise. What kind of staff do you have there in, Is it all funded from these four people plus an outreach? How does that work?
2: We have about 34 staff members. In 2020, we gave away about $15 million, which was about triple what we had given away a couple years before. So we're growing considerably as people in Los Angeles are awakening to the injustices all around us and want to do something about it.
0: Do you have fundraising events? How do, you, how do you raise the funds to support these 32 people?
2: Yes, we raise all of our money. We have to raise every dollar we spend. And we raise it from individuals. We raise it from other foundations who we partner with. Just in the last couple of years, we've begun partnering with government to get resources into under-resourced communities. For the first time, we've begun to have corporate support, and we've formed partnerships with the Dodgers, the Rams, the Chargers.
0: Well, I imagine that sports fans in L.A. will be happy to hear that they step up to support their community. So one of the lines I noticed on your website is, change, not charity. What did you mean by that?
2: Liberty Hill really is my dream job and it, it is everything. It is all of my values and my experience. So, you know, growing up poor and seeing my dad and my brother who were so brilliant and so full of love and warmth and wisdom and knowing in my gut that they, you know, just because they didn't have resources, just because we were poor doesn't mean that they didn't know what was going on, didn't understand the problems and have solutions. And so I think what To me, what Change Not Charity means is that that traditional forms of charity tend to reinforce these power dynamics and kind of reinforce the idea that certain people need help and others give it to them. It reinforces the underlying conditions that produce the need for charity in the first place. And so the motto Change Not Charity says that we really want to go upstream. We want to get to the root causes of these problems and solve these problems in a structural way. So rather than sort of feeding each individual or housing each individual, we're going to figure out what are the land use policies that we need to create more housing or what are the ways to invest in schools so that kids can get a good education, and have a chance at a, a job that pays the bills.
0: What are some of the ways that you deployed that $15 million last year?
2: Well, we quickly, as in response to COVID, set up a rapid response fund for community organizing for COVID-19, and then we set up a rapid response fund for racial justice. So that brought in additional resources that we quickly got out to grassroots organizations that were not only organizing to end youth incarceration or to win new tenant protections, but they were also figuring out how to get groceries to their members and how to connect their members in low-income communities and communities of color to information about COVID you know, either because these community members didn't have access to these resources or didn't trust government information systems, but our grassroots community organizations were able to reach people that others couldn't. So we were quickly able to pivot to that and to fund groups to respond to the racial justice uprising and and channel that energy into demands for policy change.
0: So with Liberty Hill, do you have a success metric, kind of a measuring stick for what you want to accomplish, or is there just an overwhelming mountain of issues that you want to touch on? How are you organizing your attack?
2: Right now we have several metrics. One is what we call ending youth incarceration as we know it. So that includes reducing youth arrests by 50%, reducing the number of youth jails by half, and reducing the number of kids in jail by half as a first benchmark. We aim to go much further than that, and we've accomplished most of that in the last three years with our community partners and government partners and foundation partners.
0: Are you setting up alternative treatments and alternative ways of handling someone who has committed an offense that would otherwise land them in jail?
2: Yeah. So we've gotten the Board of Supervisors to support moving youth out of the probation department, um, which is what incarcerates youth, and move them into a Department of Youth Development that is going to be fully funded to provide the types of prevention, support, and resources that kids need to avoid the criminal justice system altogether. It's uh, much less expensive and much more effective than arrest in jail. That's one of our metrics. Our other metric is to pass laws in the city and county to eliminate neighborhood oil drilling. And the third is to win stronger tenant protections, and specifically rent control in several cities. and then and in the we won a, a type of rent control in the county, winning the right to counsel, so the tenants have an attorney to represent them when they're faced with eviction.
0: You've had an interesting career. You've gone through a number of interesting cycles, very impressive. Do you feel like you've been a success?
2: I feel amazed by the progress that's been made and deeply pained by The injustices and inequities in Los Angeles, and grateful and proud that I've been able to, thanks to a lot of good luck and a lot of privilege and a lot of hard work, make my way out of poverty and then get to focus on making the world a better place for my kids and everyone else.
0: Shane Murphy Goldsmith, thank you for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. And we wish you a lot of luck in climbing the mountains that you have before you. And we hope that there are ways of accelerating some of your progress we need people like you with the foot in all camps who have empathy and understanding for all different parties and we appreciate you being here
2: thank you so much great talking to you
0: how do people follow you shane
2: you can visit libertyhill.org to learn more about liberty hill and how you can get involved
0: jane thanks for joining us
2: thank you jane and
1: bill it was my pleasure and shane thank you so much
0: Don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't have to hunt around to find Meet Me in the Middle next week. And thank you to our producer, Joey Salvia. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpert. We'll see you next week, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirko Media. Media for your mind.